Welcome to the Together for Good podcast, a podcast specifically designed to inspire, challenge, and uplift you during your daily walk of faith. This is a special episode, friends. We're taking just a brief break from Intern Rita's series on practicing resurrection. Don't worry, there will be more episodes of that series next week. Uh, But we have a special event coming up at Bethany this coming Friday, May 19th. And so I wanted to get this episode in right away. Uh, I bring on the show today Carol Holler to talk about a whole variety of issues and connections with our legal system. This Friday, we're watching a movie called Just Mercy, which deals with the topic of the death penalty. And so Carol and I have a really long conversation about uh, how this intersects with our life of faith and how she's approached it as a, in a, given her career as a public defender, uh, some of the ways that she's thought about these issues. I should just say, uh, if you have kids in the room, this might not be the best episode for them to listen to. We don't go into a lot of detail about it, but we are talking um, about the death penalty and things that relate to that. So it just might be a little too much for the younger ears, uh, but it really is a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. As always, thanks for listening to the podcast. And now a conversation with Carol Holler uh, in prep for our watching of Just Mercy this Friday. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Together for Good podcast. This is a special episode uh, that we are bringing to you because there's a really important event coming up this Friday at Bethany. Uh, this Friday, we're going to be showing the movie Just Mercy, as well as having some conversation with uh, some different attorneys from Colorado who helped abolish the death penalty in Colorado. And so as prep for this entire event, uh, and just to kind of pique your interest, I've invited on Carol Holler. Hello, Carol. Hello, Pastor Nate. Carol's sitting here in my office with me. And Carol is an attorney, but also, Carol, you have some pretty close connections to this particular conversation. So go ahead, tell us about how this all kind of fits in with your history and lore. Okay. Uh, back in 1986, I was a public defender. It was my first job. I was a law clerk directly out of law school and worked for a judge. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And day one, uh, the public defender came to the podium and made an argument, and the judge kind of gave him what for, and he blinked, and he just kept arguing, and a, like a beam came down, and I said, and said, that is your job. That is the job for you. <laughs> so I became a public defender, not having taken much criminal other than the required courses in law school. I really didn't know much about it, but I've also always been someone who has no judgment bone, which is good, uh-huh. and um, also have the underdog. I'm always mm. the one for the underdog. So when I saw that person arguing, I'm like, that is the best job in the world. So I became a public defender. Okay. I moved to Greeley, Colorado. I was a public defender from 1986 to 1994. And okay. in the course of that, I observed and learned a lot about the death penalty. Mm-hmm. I eventually married Brian Shahey, who was also a public defender, and he was a death penalty expert. Oh, wow. Not only did he try, as a defense attorney, many death penalty cases, more than seven, but he also taught nationally jury selection to other lawyers and helped develop a jury selection system that originated in Colorado and then went throughout the country for death penalty cases. Holy cow. Yeah. So really closely connected to all of this. I mean, I imagine like within lawyer world that you probably can't talk a lot about cases at home necessarily. Um, but even still, with your husband involved with this probably continually, not not just the seven cases that he was a part of, but then teaching it, thinking about it, 
this was uh, a dinner table conversation once or twice, I would imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and he got a lot of awards for his work. Neat. And um, I was very proud of him as he was a very good lawyer and very good at what he did. And one of the reasons he was such a good lawyer is he also had no judgment bone. And you have clients who are people. Yeah. And they're not cases. They're people. They have families. They have histories. They have... Um, ideas, they mm-hmm. have desires, they have goals, they have all sorts of things that other people have, and to the general public, often they're, uh, you know, not not a person. They're they're a case. They're a defendant. They're yeah. a nameless person. Right now, in many um, notorious crimes, we don't even name the defendant because we don't want to give them notoriety. Mm. Notoriety. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Well, so with, with all this too, the death penalty. Do you do you remember when it was established in Colorado? Do you have any idea on that? Um, well, it was um, established a long time ago, and then the Supreme Court, um, the U.S. Supreme Court, put a hiatus on it for a while. In Colorado, the last execution was in 1997. That was Gary Lee Davis. He killed oh. a housewife, Jenny May in eastern Colorado. Okay. And before that, the last person executed was in 1967. So in Whoa. Colorado, it has not been um, used. Uh, it's been um, tried, and there were three men on death row at the time the statute was changed to abolish the death penalty. That didn't change their sentences, but the gov- governor commuted their sentences. Those okay. three men were all black, and they were all went to the same high school in Aurora. Whoa. Yes, and they had not, it was not the same crime they were convicted of, all three different. All three different crimes. But you can see that one of the issues that causes people to question the death penalty is that it's unequally applied. Now, Gary Lee Davis was a white man, Mm -hmm. but the three that were on death row were black men who had grown up in extreme poverty and... um, Yeah, and all from the same high school, like you said, right? Like, yeah, neighborhoods apart, if at all. Yes. Fascinating. When was it officially abolished in Colorado, too? March of 2020, right when COVID hit. (laughs) Okay, I did. There there were other news items at that particular time, so I definitely missed it. (laughs) There were other um, efforts made, but the the final act was signed into law in um, March of 2020. Okay, so let's let's just think about this whole issue in general. This, which is also what we're hoping to do on Friday night too, is we're, we're bringing in and, and who's the expert that we're bringing in? Forgive me, I forget his name. His name is Phil Cherner. Uh huh. And he is a defense attorney from Colorado. He had forty-two years, I think, as a defense attorney. He did second chair, meaning he assisted in the defense of a death penalty case. Uh, but he worked tirelessly to abolish the death penalty in Colorado, having a firm feeling that it was not an appropriate penalty for us to have in our state. Yeah. Wow. So it'll be really neat to hear just his insights and thoughts about that process and why he argued for, really, yeah, how we, how we ended up where we are today. But also just for you personally, like as we kind of established, someone who's thought about this and talked about this over the dinner table a lot, um, how do you kind of conceptualize the use of the death penalty and, and yeah, just kind of your general feelings about this? I believe that the death penalty does not give us room to be human and have human error. When Mm. you are a human being and you can make mistakes, Mm -hmm. whether they're intentional or unintentional, and the result is that someone's life is taken by the state, 
Yeah. There's no going back when that mistake is discovered. Right. And that ultimate penalty of death is does not give us room for error. And there is error all the time in the state courts, mm-hmm. in the federal courts, in mm-hmm. any court, because we're all human beings. Judges are human beings. They put their robe on one elbow at a time. Mm-hmm. And just this last week in the newspaper, there was an article about this um, woman who killed her 11-year-old stepson, a heinous crime, yeah. and a crime for which the death penalty would have been an option before March of 2020. Mm-hmm. People asked, why was she not facing the death penalty? Because we don't have it in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Same week, there was an article about a man who was sentenced in the year 2000 to serve 77 years in prison, who was released from prison after a plea agreement because... The facts of his case showed that there were big problems in the prosecution of that case, including a similar crime committed a week later. He was not the person who committed the crime. He couldn't have been the person that committed the crime, but that was never tied into his defense, and he was convicted and sentenced to 77 years for a crime he probably didn't commit. Wow. Now, you know, I say probably didn't commit because he accepted a plea bargain to be released from prison immediately after 20. Three years. Three years. Yeah. Rather than go to a retrial, right. which would be the, you know, we don't have a, a law in Colorado that says if you find out there was a mistake made and you're probably innocent, you you're you get out of jail free without any anything. You, you get retried. Yep. And so in order to prevent a retrial and, and that sort of. He took a plea. He took a plea. And so it's, I mean, it's funny too, like from a, from a personal standpoint, my wife was on a jury in Philadelphia when we lived there and it was a similar situation. This man had been in prison for 25 years and DNA evidence had come out. Uh, there's this organization I'm sure you're familiar with, the, the Innocence Project, that does a lot of this work of kind of looking at people who um, have been serving time for a long time. I, I, you, you probably know the ins and outs better than I do. Um, but they, she was on the jury for this case, and they retried him after they had found DNA evidence that seemed to exonerate him. And he was, like, released of all charges. It was someone else entirely. Um, and I remember one of the key details was that the, he missed um, being convicted of the death penalty by one vote on the jury. Like, that, that it just was that, – that was – proposed at the time, you know, 25 years earlier, and thankfully was not carried through with because ultimately his innocence by the courts was proven. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's just right. Like, I really appreciate the way you're talking about of like the the element of human error in all of this. And that, yeah, death penalty is something that you can't go back on. Right. um, Versus as terrible as it is that this man had to be in jail for 25 years or 23 years. Um, to have the opportunity to correct our mistakes, mm-hmm. um, which seems to the way very much so that our entire like government system is kind of set up, right? Series of checks and balances. Right. And the judicial system is a part of that. I mean, talk to me about just generally too, um, your, 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 your understanding of the judicial system and the importance of it. Because be- before we got on recording, you were talking to me about um, like as a public defender, just having to do your best job, even for people who you might think are, are guilty or who have been accused of something terrible. So yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's part of what's going through people's minds. Like, no, like these people don't deserve this. Give us, give us the lawyer perspective on that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a common question. You're not, you're not the first person to ask. Okay. You're the last person to ask. And the issue isn't whether I think someone is guilty or not. The issue is that a person accused of a crime in our country, in our state, in our city, is 
presumed to be innocent of the crime until the government proves each and every element beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. And so the job of a defense lawyer isn't to sit here and say, well, I think you're probably guilty, or in my opinion, you're guilty. The job of a defense lawyer is to say, have they, have the government, with all of their resources, proven each element of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt? If they don't, then the person is not guilty. It's yeah. not so much that they're innocent, but they're not guilty. And so my opinion about someone's guilt or innocence has nothing to do with being a defense attorney. I mean, sometimes we used to joke, this is probably an inappropriate religious <laughs> joke, but sometimes when a client would turn down a, a plea bargain, you'd say, this client just turned down a really great plea bargain. You know, if Jesus Christ had taken a misdemeanor, he'd still be alive today, <laughs> which is a totally inappropriate defense attorney. Oh my gosh. It, but it did come up frequently that way. But sometimes, you know, the client has a right to not take a plea agreement, sure. even if you think they're guilty. And uh -huh. um, that's just the way it is. When you're a defense attorney, what you're doing is you're taking a person who's just like you and me, who's been accused of something bad, maybe even something heinous, maybe even something you can't even conceive of, the evil of it. Yeah. But because your uh, job as a defense attorney is to uh, put the government to their task of proving that case beyond a reasonable doubt, you do everything you can on the benefit of your defense client everything you can yeah and it's really i mean and that that lives at the heart of the way our judicial system has been set up correct and and i think that's really brilliant of it, it's trying to take into account human error as well i think within all of this of like no if we're going to be a just nation we have to account for every corner case and to try and establish a system that is as as pure as possible in terms of trying to give each person the best chance to be proven innocent, be proven guilty, right? Like that you really set up a system um, that hopefully can mitigate some of the, the human error aspects of it or, um, right? Like you'd probably have to, if you have conflicts of interest, you, you have to recuse yourself from a case, things yes. like that. Yes. That might affect the way, and it's and it's in the jury process too. I've been called for jury duty more times than I want, um, yeah. and, and often get kicked off because as soon as they find out that I'm a pastor, then that carries with it, that you know, all sorts of religious convictions. It's like, ah, this will this will not be helpful for you. And sometimes people say, I don't, I don't think that's right. That person got off on a technicality. I've heard that before. Okay. Okay, a technicality. If the government hasn't proven the case, no matter what the technicality is then they haven't proven their case. They have the power of the government. If they can't get it done, mm. then the person is not guilty and should not be convicted. Interesting. Sometimes it's a mistake. Maybe they forgot to prove something. Maybe they forgot to prove the value of something. Yeah. My bike was stolen from my garage last week when the police called me to go over the facts. At the very end of the conversation, the police officer says to me, I know this is going to be kind of a silly case, but did you, silly question, but did you give anyone permission to take the bike out of your garage? Yeah. Of course, as a lawyer and a judge, I know why he asked that question. That's uh -huh. an element. That's an element that the prosecution is going to have to prove if the case ever goes to trial. Uh -huh. And so if my answer is no, then they say, okay, we've got all the elements we need to go forward in this case. Interesting. If it was a technicality and the district attorney forgot to ask at some point, did you give anybody permission to take it? Uh huh. And then it goes to the jury and one of the elements is, did the prosecution prove that she didn't give anybody permission? And they never asked the question. Is that a technicality? Yes, but the government has to prove it. Uh huh. If we start saying, well, they should prove everything, but you know, that's kind of a stupid idea. She wouldn't ever, why would she report a crime if she gave someone permission? Once we start doing that, that's a very slippery slope. Right. We don't want to do that. 
We right. Have, we have a system where the person accused of a crime is, presu is presumed to be innocent, and the government, with all of their resources, is the one who has to tackle proving that that's not true. And there's, yeah, and this is why you, you write like lawyers print so many pages and pages of information and why trials take so long. And yeah, because you got to account for all the corner cases. That's right. All the little details. Um, that's why I, many reasons why I'm not a lawyer. Um, <laughs> but you mentioned back though, uh, your, your funny joke about Jesus getting off with a misdemeanor. Um, <laughs> and I do think that this is part of why I'm excited for the conversation on Friday too. Like, I just think that talking about the death penalty really should be something that Christians think deeply about because our savior <laughs> right, like, was killed by death penalty. It, it, it is a part of the story. We tell it every year on Good Friday about a public execution um, by an, the state. Of an innocent man. Of an innocent man of by the state. Of an innocent man. Right. And the government had the opportunity to take that off the table. Pontius Pilate could have said, I don't care what rabble-rousers you are. I don't care who you want. I don't care, you know. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I am not doing this. This is not right. I am the government. I have an obligation not to see justice you know, perverted tail. like this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And he didn't, he washed his hands. He did. So the, the, help us think too, about other pieces of our faith life, like kind of connected to all this. We got into a lot of the, the nitty gritty legal details, which I love. And I think is really interesting, but also, yeah. I mean, where, where do you see this having a deeply, a deep connection to your life of faith? I have always looked at being a defense attorney as a calling. Uh, and I think it is. Being a public defender wasn't just a job. It was really a way of living. Yeah. And the reason is because you are dealing with some of the people who have had the least opportunities and they've done something very, very heinous or they're accused of doing something very heinous, very bad, something that society just abhors. Mm -hmm. But as a person of faith, you say, I am called to do for the least what I can. Mm -hmm. And if I have the skill, the temperament, the ability, the capacity to do that, that's a calling. Mm -hmm. And that's what Jesus taught us. Mm -hmm. Jesus didn't just sit down with people that were innocent. No. He didn't just sit down with the victims of crime. He didn't just sit down with um, people who were nice. He sat down with tax collectors. He sat down with untouchables. He gave grace to all sorts of people. And that's one of the things as a defense mm -hmm. attorney that I was able to is give grace to people who have had the worst day of their lives usually. And yeah. they may have caused the worst day of someone else's life. Right. I'm not minimizing the damage that's caused by a criminal defense, a def criminal defendant. It's terrible, but. It is interesting. I'm sure you receive over the course of your career, a lot of the same questions about like, how could you defend this person? Right? Like how could you associate with this person? Um, and, and there's a lot of parallels to the ways that people saw Jesus's interactions as mm -hmm. well. Um, and yet, I think you're the one that said it before we hit record too, right? Like Jesus on the cross is is pardoning and, you know, treating the criminals beside him with compassion. Um, that was not a deal breaker for him. Also, if you read through the Gospel of John, the way that the story is kind of told is that like Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him and yet still washes his feet. Um, like the, it didn't seem like Jesus put a lot of restrictions around who he would treat with compassion, even right. knowing what the, you'd write, like, without a shadow of a doubt, I'm guessing, in the mind of <laughs> um, the Son of God, 
that these people were guilty of the crimes too. And which is right, like you, and you don't know that necessarily when you step up to defend these people. You might have a pretty good guess, but your job, as we've been discussing, is to simply move forward and to you know to give them the best, the right to a fair trial that our country enshrines in the Constitution is what they deserve. Right, and if you can't do that because the crime does so disturb you, then you're not the right lawyer for that case. There are times when you can't do that. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember someone being very surprised when I, at five or six months pregnant, defended a woman who was accused of child abuse resulting in death. Mm. And they were very judgmental about it. How mm-hmm. can you possibly do that? Mm-hmm. You are pregnant. How can you possibly defend someone accused of killing her children? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, really, it has nothing to do with life and birth and hope for your children. It has to do with what this woman is entitled to under our laws. Yeah. She's entitled to a robust defense. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was kind of surprised that people would say that your own personal status as a pregnant person might make you less capable of defending vigorously or of even just being able to do it. Yeah, no um, kidding. And I, and I guess that's because, again, it's a calling. Not everybody wants to be a defense attorney, let me tell you. Most people would not choose it as a career. As we've established, I couldn't handle the paperwork, so. <laughs> <laughs> no. and, 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 you know, it really is one of those things. I don't have the judgment bone. That's what I told you before. So yeah, yeah. I lack the judgment bone. I don't have judgment over people, which has always been an interesting thing to me. Um, and I think that helps. Yeah. Because that helps me just say, you're a person just like me. Um, you know, and you meet people in their in terrible, terrible situations and you get to know them as people. Yeah. Again, they're not just a, a name or a case number. They're people. I still have contact with people I represented mm. who were accused of murder, who were mm-hmm. in prison for the rest of their lives. I still have contact with them. Why? Because they're people. Yeah. Because they still have hopes and dreams, and they're they're still, um, you know, capable of love and needing needing love in return, basically. Yeah. And again. Like, like to bring it back to the model that Jesus gives us, I think there's something really powerful about what you're talking about. Like still treating them like people, you know, still, right? Like Jesus still washing Judas's feet, even though he knows in a few hours, all of this is going to change and turn around. It does seem like our calling is to, is to continue to try and get back to that, that human component and seeing the, you know, the spark of God that lives within each and every one of us and honoring that in one another, um, it's not always easy, and I'm sure there's I'm sure there's people you could list who you don't want to treat like people. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and what's, what's interesting is people will often say, "Well, how can you do that when you know what pain they've caused other people?" Yeah. Mm. And in the state of Colorado, we have we have a constitutional victims' rights, a constitutional right to victims, which is unusual in most states. It's not a part of the constitution; it's a statute. Um, but in Colorado, we have a constitution, and we do. We treat victims with, with dignity and respect, and the crime has occurred. Nothing can change that. Nothing can bring that person back. Nothing can fill that picture back up. Yeah. So I don't want to diminish the pain that's caused by crime mm-hmm. and by people who commit crime. And that's one of the reasons it's so emotional, and especially death penalty cases are so emotional. It, the emotional toll it takes on the prosecutor, the defense attorney, the defendant, the victim's family, the judge, the, the jury, reporter, yeah. the jury. You know, we have a, a in, in Colorado, we have 
the ability to have psychiatric help for jurors who have had to sit through heinous crimes. Yeah. Um, and sometimes we have uh, a psychiatrist or a psychologist come to meet with the jury before they disband to talk about what they've seen and what wow. they've experienced. Yeah. So, you know, that kind of care that our state takes for people, I think, is an important um, component of any criminal justice Yeah, system. that's really neat to know. Wow. Well, Carol, thank you so much for lending your expertise for this conversation. I will say, right, like we covered a lot of topics. And if you want to ask more questions, um, if you want more clarification and there's things you didn't agree with or that you'd want to challenge, you should come on Friday night. There's this great event this Friday, May 19th here at Bethany starting at 530. 530. Pizza. There will be pizza. There will be drinks. And good and plenties. I got some. (laughs) Oh, nice. Hey. (laughs) And a great conversation and a really good movie that also will hopefully propel some good discussion. I just think as people of faith, these are important things for us to be thinking about, um, talking about learning from one another, uh, agreeing to disagree at times too on these controversial issues, uh, but still discerning together where Christ might be calling us forward. So Carol, anything to add? No, thank you, Pastor. Thank you for being on here. And listener, thanks for listening. Stay in peace, everyone.